Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With four campuses scattered throughout Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Good morning. It's great to welcome all of you here uh, gathered in our room and also everyone gathered uh, with us online. I need to, uh, as you begin, just take a deep breath because um, what uh, we've been thinking about this question, or I've been thinking about this question, I'm going to ask it to you, um, is what is so compelling about Jesus? Like we, we, we talk about him, we say we're you know, Christians, or some of you do, most of you do, some of you watching may or may not, depends on where you are. Um, we know about him, we've seen movies about him or heard things about him. And oftentimes it just becomes sort of uh, just a part of, of our culture, of our thinking. And you know, really what this series is about to me personally is it's probably about a 10 to 12 year journey. Um, I've been following uh, Jesus since I was about, uh, really, I mean, I, I became a Christian when I was you know, a, a child, seven uh, years old, six or seven years old. Uh, around the age of 15, kind of had a, a kind of a real crisis of faith. Like, is this really what I believe? And then somewhere around 19, really, is this like the faith? Is this what I've heard or is this what I believe? And my posture was, I'm going to follow Jesus and try to learn from him and surrender to him. And I've, you know, done that um, for the better part of uh, 35 years. Uh, is that right? Yeah, 35 years. And... Um, not perfectly, and some seasons were far more surrendered than others. Some were wrestling matches. Some were wanting to get away from him and from this way of Jesus and what was happening. Uh, and so the reason I, I need to take a breath, because there's so much, like, like honestly, where I'm at today, I am more compelled by him and who he is than perhaps at any point in my life. And so I, I want to try and let you in on that so that we can learn together and really for each of us to really be moved and compelled by who he is, not just, to, not just so we can get things right or vote right or, or understand the right things about the positions, but so that, that we see him as being worthy of giving ourselves to and giving ourselves for. And that's, that's the language that Jesus used. That's what he modeled. And so I want to kind of push in on us there. So um, if you're playing along or if you want to play along, we're going to be providing you with a reading plan uh, to read through the Gospels. In case you're not aware, it's interesting. Uh, Jesus is one of, he is probably, and I can say this with great confidence, you could argue, I suppose, but he is the single most significant figure in all of history, shaped more philosophies and things than, than any other person. He's never written any books, didn't lead any armies, didn't hold any offices. He just was, he was a carpenter, became a, Messiah, became a, a rabbi in the first century. And, he, and it's undeniable the impact he had. When you, when you look at what he did historically, um, it's pretty, pretty clear um, what happened to him. Uh, the, the resurrection obviously is a, a point of dispute among a lot of folks, but his crucifixion, his execution as an enemy of the state um, is not. And what we have, and I think sometimes we forget this, we have 
uh, in our Bibles or on your phone if you're scrolling through. These are ancient records of a man named Jesus. And so when you look at a lot of you may have grown up in different traditions or whatever, and they have creeds and, and uh, things that we recite in services. And a lot of people have re- recited these things. And it says, you know, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and maker of earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. And usually in almost every creed, it says, you know, we believe we affirm the virgin birth. We affirm his death and his resurrection, you know, tried under Pontius Pilate, his death, and his resurrection. But very few creeds contain what he did and what he taught here in this world. So I'm gonna assume we all know the resurrection, the crucifixion. I wanna focus on this idea of the way of Jesus in this. The way of Jesus and look at what he did, how he interacted, what he said. And he defies so much of what we think and what we would do. And one of the things I'm gonna be doing uh, in this series is I wanna sort of contrast this because there's a way of the world. There's a way that we are gonna be squeezed into. There's a way that we actually like and enjoy and we're comfortable with it. We're familiar with it. We know how to manipulate it. We know how to get our way in it. We often even know how to get Jesus to agree with our way in it. And then there's this radically different thing that is the way of Jesus that he actually claimed to be. So we're gonna be looking at sort of these two things. We're going to use this to identify or look at four things that is killing our world and then see what difference it makes. That's just from my reference right there. So I don't know if you have taken time to read the gospels recently, but they're they're, they're fascinating if you just read them and you see what Jesus did and what he was like. A lot of us try to figure out you know, how we put Jesus in a box or how he fits in this particular category. Is he Democrat? Is he Republican? Is he this? Is he that? You know, would he vote for Trump or would he vote for Biden? Or, or everybody's trying to figure out, you know, how we're going to deal with all this stuff. And then what you read is the way he's introduced. These four historical accounts of Jesus, four different ways. We're going to provide you with a reading plan. You can go to portcity.church forward slash compelled. And you'll be able to do kind of a broad view over the life of Jesus. And what you'll find in there is just staggering things that he said and did that we've often become too familiar with because we saw him as a sort of a children's story on a flannel board. We saw it in a VeggieTales cartoon or wherever our experience is growing up. And we sort of lost the idea that this is a real person in real history doing real things. And John would open his gospel with like a kind of a pull from Genesis. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was with God in the beginning. And that's how John starts his gospel. Then he talks about John the Baptist. Luke starts off, Luke was probably hired by a guy named Theophilus to try and record what Jesus did. So Luke begins his account. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. That's the word he used, used it. Just as they were handed down by eyewitnesses. So with this in mind, I've tried to create a firsthand account from my research about this man named Jesus. And then everything that unfolds is him saying, this is what I've researched. This is what I've seen. This is what I've heard. And I've recorded this for you so that it might be accurate. Luke records his, or Mark records his a little bit different. He just says, in the beginning of the good, in the, uh, sorry, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. That's all he says. That's the answer. This is the, in the beginning, this is the good news of the son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, which was actually the way they would introduce 
an emperor or a conquering king. This is the beginning of the rule and reign of this particular title, of this particular person, this particular season. And then Mark goes on the shortest gospel of all and just kind of gives this bullet list of how Jesus operated. And then there's Matthew. And Matthew, if you want some really compelling reason, 400 years of silence in one page in your Bible. And then Matthew opens like this. Now, if you want to really get interested in something, just listen to this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez. And it just goes on and on. You're like, dude, this is a great quiet time right here. You can get a lot out of that. Nobody's tweeting those. And we miss so much. When a Jewish person was recording Jewish genealogy, the father was very important. It was a very patriarchal society. We all know this. You know, Jacob is the son of Isaac and the son of this. And they always reference to the father. In this genealogy recorded for us in Matthew, there are four women that are mentioned, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. Two of them, all of, none of them were Jewish women. All of them were used to preserve or rescue this seed of promise that was given to Abraham. So, so when Matthew's writing this, he knows that every Jewish person that he's writing to would have understood that this was really troublesome, that there would be these four women who weren't Jews as a part of rescuing this promise that was given to their forefathers, Isaac, or Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And not only that, but one of them was a prostitute and the other one was the mistress of the king that almost took everything down. And they're in here. That God saw fit to record this for us in a way that is just, it's, it's, it's challenging, it's mind-blowing, and it defies, defies, is that the right? It defies, it, that sounds really Southern, doesn't it? It it, it keeps us from boxing him into something. Everything about this. When Jesus was asked questions, I don't know if you know this, somebody actually counted this. He was asked 183 direct questions in the gospels that are recorded for us. 183 times someone walked up to him like the rich young ruler and said, hey, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? 183 direct questions. You know how many direct answers he gave? Three. Talk about maddening. You ever talk to someone like that? You ask them a question, they just give you an answer. It's like a politician, right? It's like, what is this? So is, is that what Jesus is? Is he just sort of smooth and he's moving around? What, what is he doing? I began to just look over this and look over this and try to, try to get my mind on his miracles. His first, because you'll read this this week in the reading plan, John chapter two. His first miracle is he's at a wedding and he's with a bunch of folks and he's really just kind of emerged and so there are people there and it's a big deal to, to serve, you know, they're serving wine and they run out of wine and someone evidently tells Jesus' mom, hey, we're out of wine. And his mom looks at Jesus and is like, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. We need to fix this. Now, can you, you don't even know, we don't know anything that happened. His mom may have seen him do something before or knew something. He's like, hey, you can probably do something. And, and Jesus says, my time is not yet as, at hand. So he tells the servants to go and fill these these buckets, these uh, probably stone pots up with water that people would use to wash themselves when they come in. Because that was ceremony. You wash yourself as a ritual to say, I'm clean enough to eat together and to be in this community. I'm clean. Fill those pots up with water. And then I want you to go and I want you to dip some water out of that bucket, put it in a cup and go take it to the head guy. 
And it turns into the best wine. He's like, this is the best wine. And then what does he tell his disciples? Shh, don't tell anybody. If you did that, that'd be all over your Instagram, man. We'd be like, whoa, look at this. Like we were, there was nothing. When someone asked him a question about how to get out from underneath. Hey, Jesus, settle this dispute. Like, do I, do I owe this person this or, or am, I, am, I, am I right to do this? And he tells them a story about who you're willing to give yourself to sacrificially. He was always doing stuff like this. His parables, the kingdom of God is like, and he would give a list of things. There, there's, there, you know, when I started making my list, I was like, he was overtly subversive. He was overtly subversive. He was puzzlingly clear. Like you, could, you, you, you saw something, but you couldn't quite pin him down. He was profoundly deliberate. You think about the power that he exercised. One of my favorite scenes, and I imagine this all the time, is when Jesus just looks, they're about to, they're about to try him and crucify him. And he says, I could call down legions of angels right now if I wanted to. Now, I don't know about you. I guarantee you nobody's gonna hit. If I have 12,000 legions, uh, uh, legions of angels at my command, I'm not waiting in traffic, let alone let someone hit me in the back with a whip. They'll be dead, boom, just like that. And Jesus just, he, he knew this and the way he operated, the way he lived his way in this world. He would say things. Oh, you know, the Roman government, right? They make you, they require you to take a soldier's pack one mile. But I say to you, if someone makes you carry their pack one mile, why don't you go the second? You've heard it said, right? Um, Thou shalt not kill. Everybody knows that. But I say to you, if someone hits you or if, uh, uh, if, you, if you think and harbor contempt or disdain for another person in your own mind, you're guilty of the fires of hell. And it just, this list goes on and on. You've heard it said, right? One of the most troubling things about Jesus is he said, you know, you've heard it said, right? Love your enemies. I mean, love your, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But, but I say to you, the way of Jesus is different. You are to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You're like, what? Who, who's, who gets to qualify for that? I read this, uh, that's found in the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, all of those. I read this quote this week, I love this. It says, the history of Christianity is the history of Christians trying to evade the Sermon on the Mount and avoid its plain meaning. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. These are not values that we love and believe in and think about very often. It's certainly not in a way that's blessed. What Jesus did was so upside down. Was so upside down. So I want us to look at Jesus. I love what Philip Yancey wrote about him. He says, in Jesus, God lay down on the dissection table, as it were, stretched out in a cruciform posture for the scrutiny of all the skeptics who have ever lived. You wanna know what God is like? Let's look at Jesus. And that's what we're going to do for the next few weeks we have together. So I want you to understand a couple of things that Jesus came into a world that was very Jewish, ruled by the law, 613 of them. 
that had, that had evolved over time and given by God over time through all these different scenarios, through Mount Sinai and the wandering in the wilderness and the promised land and through conquering, all the histories it just grinds through. And they developed this system, sacrificial system, a temple system, nothing that ever seemed to work or do what it was. And they just kept making more laws and more laws and more laws and more laws to try and figure out how to get shalom once again, how to redeem what God had originally intended. And so this is the system as it begins to sort of unfold and it begins to, um, to, uh, uh, to be seen and try to, to manage. And then Isaiah the prophet uh, comes up and he writes uh, this that Jesus would later use. We'll look at that in just a minute. He writes these words and I wanna read this because in there you'll find these four things that I think really speak to our culture. So I'm gonna put them up there now so don't forget them. Thing number one is poverty. Because a lot of us have ended up believing that we gotta solve all the problems over here and this over here is really reserved for eternity. And we don't ever understand how does someone who walks in this way deal with all these things? Poverty is one. Brokenness is another. Anybody think that our world is broken? I mean, it's just broke. Just broken. That we live in a sense of bondage. We're just stuck. We can't, seem to be do, we can't seem to do anything different than we've always done. The levels of anxiety and fear that I hear all throughout, you know, people I'm talking to. And there's a way, there seems to be a way that's been offered to us that defies, not only defies this, but allows us to enter into this. And the last one is this idea of blindness or perspective, just the lack of perspective that we cannot see. You're gonna read a couple of things in this passage, in this prophecy from Isaiah that you need to know about. Number one is what they called the year of Jubilee or the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the year of the Lord's favor would happen when uh, every 50 years, they would basically do an economic reset. Every slave would be free, every debt would be forgiven and uh, everything would go back to the way it was supposed to be. It's a fascinating concept when you think about this sort of uh, sociologically or anthropologically. It, it would be pretty amazing to try to figure out how this would work. But it, it, there's, there's really, there's a lot of you know, speculation about it. But that would be the year of Jubilee. It would be a hard reset on this redemption of the way things ought to be. That was what the year of Jubilee would be. And there was also this day of vengeance or the day of the Lord is how it's often described. And a lot of us today, we're hearing about this day of the Lord because a lot of with what's going on in the pandemic and the fires and the earthquakes and the hurricanes, we're like, oh my gosh, is Jesus coming back? Because we saw the movie, right? And we're like, is Jesus coming back? And I get asked this all the time, Mike, do you think Jesus is coming back? Well, I'm gonna tell you the answer to that question definitively. I have no idea. And I'll tell you whether he's coming back tomorrow or hundred years from now, it doesn't change what compels me today and what's gonna compel me tomorrow. And that's what I want for us to get to. Because when it talks about a day of vengeance, a lot of us get excited about this. Because what you think is this the day when Jesus is coming back, right? You've all heard from Revelation, he's coming in on a white, white horse with a tattoo down his leg. Some of you get excited about that. A tattoo down his leg and a sword and he's gonna bring the day of vengeance. And what we think is that he's gonna come in and he's gonna wipe out everyone who disagrees with us. That's what vengeance is. You take my enemies and you destroy them. And my question is, does that sound like Jesus? 
Does it sound like the Jesus that we know? This doesn't mean that he's not gonna, there's not a final day of judgment. It doesn't mean that there's not, it doesn't mean any of that. It just means that we have this picture in our head that he's gonna come in and he's gonna vindicate me and my views and me and what I think the, way the world ought to be. It's interesting when Jesus comes in on this white horse with a sword, his garments are already bloodied before the battle even begins. And the sword is actually in his mouth and not in his hand because he comes to be able to pronounce with the word. You know what God does with his word, right? He creates things and he recreates things. You're gonna see this whole pattern because what Jesus came to do and his message is clear is to renew and to restore and to redeem. We gotta keep this in mind as we read this and how we would see this much differently because he's gonna defy most everything that we expect him to do. So here's how this reads. Isaiah 61, verse one through three, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness the prisoners. And here are those four things right here in Isaiah. That's where I pulled them from. We're gonna look at this over the next few weeks as we talk about what the way of Jesus looks like in each one of these things. To proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He doesn't promise that we will be spared from brokenheartedness. He doesn't promise that he will get you out of your brokenheartedness. He says he will hold you in it. He will bind us up in it. To proclaim freedom for the captives, there actually is a way to live differently and to release from darkness for the prisoners, or that word is literally the blind, those who can't see. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, or the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of the vengeance of our God. So Isaiah's writing, these, this, this coming king, this person who's gonna do this is gonna proclaim both of those things. To comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of despair. He's coming to make, to offer you an exchange for our ashes, that the things, the dreams, the hopes we had that were just destroyed or disintegrated. He offers us beauty out of those ashes. There's a way for that to occur. For the, for the overwhelming sense of sadness that perhaps has become your identity, because it's just nothing's ever worked out, this sense of, of, of sadness that you feel this morning. He says, I'm gonna let joy wash over you. And for those of you who live with chronic despair, the inability to see anything hopeful in the future, I'm going to offer you and clothe you with a garment of praise. This is what is promised. And then he says this, that they shall be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They shall be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor, that somehow what I do in my life displays, puts on display the very splendor of the one in whose image that I've been made. That's what is to occur, okay? That's Old Testament. So a couple of things again to kind of picture. In the way of the world, there's a system of governance. There's a, there's a, there's a way where authority is derived from. And that way is derived in our culture, in the way of the world, is the law. That's, that's how everything gets legislated or ordered or governed, is by the laws that we've created. This is not new to America. This is all that happened in the Old Covenant. 
there's, a, there's sort of an operating or a, a way that we operate, uh, a way that we see uh, in this, the way in which we uh, sort of operate is based on evidence. And this means that we're constantly looking for facts to buttress our purpose, our positions, all those things. We're always looking for this because we got to have evidence. And then the way in which we live, the, the exchange, the way we relate to one another is all based on proof. Are you living like you should? Are you doing, are you, are you measuring up to what's been said? And you're always trying to prove or exchange value in the system because everything's sort of an economy of exchange. This is how we deal with money. This is why generosity is a problem, right? Because this is mine. And in order for me to let go of this, I've got to get something that values that exchange there. This is what's wrong with us when it comes to our sexuality because it's become an economy. It's become something that I've got to use to either buttress my own affections or desires or got to use it to get something from someone else or to keep someone loyal to me or I use it as a conquest or whatever it is because it's all a median, it's a means of exchange. It's proving something. Do you love me? Do you care about me? Is this satisfying me? Is this who I am? All these things are all about, about what we see in this way. And ultimately the overall rule, because it's not fair that you don't get to do something that you, all those things come in because the ultimate value under the system of law is fairness. Anything wrong with this? Anything wrong with longing for things to be fair? Of course not. Of course not. That's not the point. The point is not is something good or bad. The point is just the way we were intended to live. Because a lot of us end up believing, see, this is the way of Jesus. What a lot of us have ended up believing, a lot of us are gonna be put to the test on this in about six weeks or however long it is. You're gonna vote. And you're gonna think that one party represents one system and the other party represents the other system. No matter which side you're on. Both of them are saying the same thing and they're gonna continue to say, say the same thing. You're gonna hear a lot of talk about evangelicals or blah, 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 blah. You're hearing all that kind of stuff because they assume that one side is on the side of God and the other side is on the side of the world. One side is on the side of what is right and one side is on the side of what is wrong. And what I wanna tell you is this isn't left and this isn't right or this isn't left and this isn't right. Left sits right here and right sits right here. They are both squarely on the system of the world. And what I'm asking you, I want you to see this contrast because all of this, all of these have ways to deal with all of these issues. And I can tell you, it ain't working like it should. The systemic disparities, all the things that play into all of these things, the fact that we can't get good information all plays in because there's a system that is operating here that everybody's using to try to protect and preserve their own will in their own way. They're trying to take and then use God to say, God, we're gonna take and we're gonna bring you down. We're gonna create you in our own image. We're gonna try to define right and wrong and just and unjust for ourselves, which is the essence of the fall itself. To try and define our lives and our way apart from God. So along comes Jesus. And what does he say? Well, let's look at this. Luke chapter four, so Jesus has been teaching. He's starting to get some popularity. He was a carpenter for a while. I would love, can you imagine if you had a table that Jesus built? <laughs> that would be legit. He was a carpenter. He worked with his hands. He had, you know, a mom and, and a dad, Mary, and then his, his stepfather, uh, Joseph. And we don't even know what happened to Joseph. 
We just know he wasn't there at the age of 33 when he was died. I won't have anything about him when Jesus was teaching. Most people assume that Joseph died early in Jesus' life. Jesus had other brothers and sisters. So you can imagine if your brother was like the Messiah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you bullied me long enough. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of things that go through. There's actually a, a, a writing that was pretty ancient that was written about Jesus' interaction as a child making stuff and who knows. Um, so anyway, it's off the subject. So Jesus is now getting some attention. People are starting to pay attention to him. He's emerged on the scene as a rabbi, which was something that would happen in that culture. And in chapter four, he says he was baptized by John. Uh, He went out in the wilderness. He was tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he enters or arrives um, uh, uh, back in his hometown uh, in Luke chapter four. And in verse 14, it starts and it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and the news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He was a pretty well-known and pretty popular teacher in the synagogues in that day. He would open up the scrolls and he would teach from them. And then it says, he went back to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. So now he's back in his hometown. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue as was his custom. He was a Jewish man. He was always in the synagogue. Every, you know, he did all the temple stuff, all that he did as was his custom. And he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. So he turns in the scroll exactly where we turned in our Bibles to Isaiah 61. And he begins reading. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover sight for the blind. And to the oppressed, freedom uh, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now picture this. He just read this. And so if you're a Jewish person too, not only did you, were you aware, you knew the scrolls, you knew the prophet Isaiah. You knew that when Jesus said that he, when he read, hey, I proclaimed, come to proclaim the favor of the year of the Lord. And then he rolled it up and sat down. He left off the day of vengeance. You would have noticed that. You would have known that. And he sits down. So everybody's looking at him. Are you finished? And here's what he says. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, I want you to understand that what was written in this book is about me. That's what he said. And now he's written by me, it has been fulfilled in this. What he was saying is that God has anointed me to bring this way to the world so that we would announce the favorable year of the Lord, this season in which this redemption would happen. There are so many things about this year of Jubilee, this long season of redemption. There's so many nuances to how it got to be defined. And it has started on the, on the very day uh, that the scapegoat was sent out, the lamb, that they would, they would put the blood uh, and they would put it on the lamb. They would send the lamb out. And Jesus would be the spotless. And there's all these things that this would usher in this new season of redemption. And he says, I'm here to proclaim that the favorable year, the favorable season of God's redemption is here. And they're like, well, what about the day of vengeance? He says, oh, I'm taking that. Do you know why Jesus shows back up at the end of time on the white horse and his blood 
his garments are already bloodied because it's his blood of the price that he paid for us that allows us to be free. And when he comes, he's not coming to destroy and to, to bring the sword to bear on our enemies. He's coming to make sure that the message and the verdict of redemption is available to everyone. The enemy is not the people that are around us. The enemy is the force underneath us that keeps us in this system of exchange and proving ourselves where we cannot trust and give ourselves to one another. That's what Jesus came to demonstrate and to renew. And there's a way in which we learn to live in this. He said, this is fulfilled in me. Do you know how many times Jesus would mention that? That's, how, that's exactly how Luke starts his, 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 uh, his chapter, right? He says that these things have been fulfilled. When Jesus was pushed on his view of the law, he said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it, to complete it. I have come not as the thief to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Because you see, the way of the kingdom is much different. And it's, 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 these two things are never going to line up. They just don't. And believe me, I got opinions and I got, I got all kinds of things that I wanna say. And I, got all, I mean, I do, I'd feel just like everybody else. If you just thought like me and believed like me, the world would be so much better. And I keep trying to take his way and put it into this way. They just aren't compatible. The system in which governs, the governing force in the way of Jesus is love. Greater love has no man than he would lay down his life for another. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet centered, cr sinners, Christ died for us. That's the governing force. What's been so challenging and compelling for me is to learn what that looks like in real time, in real life. With people who disagree or people who say things harshly about me or people who I would consider this person is making themselves an enemy and I can't, you know, all those things happen and how does the, the rule of love govern this? How does it affect the way we deal with poverty? How does it affect the way we deal with brokenness and bondage and blindness? How does it affect these things? The way of Jesus is the fact that he became flesh and blood and he dwelt among us so we could see what the way of God looks like in a real world, not for there. It operates by faith. We know this, we walk by faith and not by sight. We're not looking for evidence to buttress. We are looking at who it is that we place our faith in. We sang a song, right? Resurrection power over every circumstance. Is that true? Can we find it? Can we experience it? The exchange is trust. We can actually trust one another. One of the things I've been practicing with the relationships that I'm responsible for is to talk about trust a lot with our staff. I trust you. This is your decision. I trust you in this. I trust you. I'm, I'm, that's the exchange. You don't have to prove that your decision is right. You don't have to, I'm just trusting you with this. With my kids, I'm trusting you with this. I'm asking, but I'm trusting. This is your decision. We're, we operate on an economy of, of trust because we're gonna give ourselves to one another. And ultimately, man, this is what I love. 
The way of Jesus isn't about fairness. It's about fullness. You want to help create a system to be fair and knock yourself out. I want to help people find fullness. That's what I want to do. That's what we want to be about. So how do we, how do we get this? Jesus did a lot of things. If you continue on in John, it says that he came into his own and his own did not receive him. His own did not receive him. They didn't trust who he was. They didn't believe who he was. Maybe they were looking for, hey, can you do something cool for me? Can, can you demonstrate your way in this way? And he's like, no, you gotta try, you gotta step into this way. There's something, something has to happen. To all who would believe him, he says, but to all who would believe him, to them, he would give the right to become children of God, to become reconciled to the Father. To all who would believe him, he would give them the right. You know what happens when you're given the right to something? When someone hands you the keys to the car, you're responsible, you act with authority. To all who would believe him, who would receive him, to them he would give them the right to live in this way of life. But he didn't leave us here to figure it out on our own. He actually empowers us to do it. The purpose of this message isn't to help us figure out what Jesus would do and then go imitate it here. It's to actually figure out how we live sourced by what it is, it is that he has done for us so that we affect the world in this way. We're gonna have to do things in this system all the time, but we do it as people who walk here, who people who live like this, people like this, do things like this in this system. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to understand. And the way in which this happens, it's the same thing, think about this, right? He'll give you beauty, a crown of beauty for your ashes. He'll give you this oil of joy, he'll cover you for your mourning. A garment of praise for your despair, it's an exchange. You can't get beauty from ashes if you hold the ashes. You can't, get, you can't get joy from mourning if you just hold on to it and you identify with it and say, this, the world's been against me. God doesn't like me. All these things have happened to me and it's sad and it's depressing and I'm just gonna hold on to this. It's an exchange. You gotta bring something to him. You don't get a garment. You don't get clothed unless you bring him your despair. It's an exchange to all who would Give, uh, to be, would believe him, to them, all who would receive him, to them he would give the right to become children of God. You know how you receive something? The first thing you gotta do is you gotta empty whatever it is you've got. Think about this. I think about this uh, every day. I love to just kind of take some breaths. Breathe in. Do it with me. Ready? If you're on your seventh cup of coffee at home, just stop. I know you're like super like jittery. Just breathe. You know, every day, this is how grace comes to us. We just receive it and we release it. And we receive it and we release it. And we receive it. None of you woke up and thought, man, I better hope there's enough air here today. I better save up 24 hours worth and bank it somewhere. Oh, 
right? Because if you do that, what happens? You're going to die. In fact, if you, if you sucked in air right now, if you just said, I'm gonna, just hold your breath. <gasps> don't do that because some of you will do it and pass out. I don't want to be responsible for that. <gasps> you hold your breath and then try to receive another one. <laughs> the only way you can do it is to, <sighs> to let one go so you can receive the next. Now, the, the thing that I'm, I'm trying to get you to understand is that, that to all who would receive him, to take him in, that means that you've got to bring everything that you have to the, you will never see Jesus in a way that causes you to sacrifice for him if you don't see him for who he really is. And what he has invited us into is an exchange. He exchanges your life for his life. You exchange your way for his way. You exchange your will for his will. This is so important because where we want to start this series is not with a bunch of things that we can look at and imitate. Because what I believe is if, if we can see him in such a way that incites us to worship, we'll see him as worthy of actually giving our lives to and giving our lives for. And so I want to close our time. I want to do this by reading out of the book of Colossians. This is where Paul recounts who Jesus is and what it is that he's done and what he's doing. Because he's renewing and he's restoring and he's saying that there is no other way that's gonna happen apart from him. So I want to read this as sort of a benediction over us. And then we're gonna declare something together as we uh, conclude our time. This is from Colossians chapter one. Verses 15 through 20. And it says, The Son, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. When you see God, uh, Jesus, you see God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For in Him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, they're all subject to Him. For he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. In him all things are held together. In a world that is coming apart at the seams, in him all things are held together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning and the firstborn from among all who have died, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor, that He would be seen as supreme in everything. For God was pleased, the Father was pleased to have all of the fullness to dwell in His Son, Jesus, and through Him to reconcile all things. All things are held together in Him. All things are reconciled together through Him. There simply is no other way given. But in that way, there's good news for those impoverished and bankrupt in their souls. There is 
good news for those who are brokenhearted because there's something that can hold you and sustain you. There's good news for those who are stuck in bondage and addiction and can't get unstuck. And there's light that is available that allows us to see. It's an exchange. Father, we come to you right now. And we just bring our ashes and we bring our mourning, we bring our despair. We bring our tightly held plans and our carefully crafted schemes to preserve our own comfort in this season. And we just open up our hands. And God, what we're confessing is that you give, you turn mourning to dancing and you turn, right, despair into joy. So Father, we just ask you to do that. Give us the courage to release what we hold in order that we may receive what you have. And lift all of this in your son, Jesus, who's our king. If you're in the room, I wanna invite you to stand as we declare this together.